Welcome to Season 2 of EdTech Insiders, where we talk to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors driving the future of education technology. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an EdTech veteran with over 10 years of experience at top EdTech companies. Hello, everyone. It is March 5th. And we are so excited to bring in the month of March, bring in spring with another episode of Week in EdTech. I'm Ben Cornell, here with my co-host, Alex Sarlin. We're so excited to catch you up. Crazy amount of things going on in the EdTech world. But before we do that, what's going on with the pod, Alex? Yeah, so we are right on the verge of South by Southwest EDU. It starts tomorrow. And our next episode is actually an interview with four of the seven launch competitors at the South by Southwest pitch launch competition. They happen to be amazing companies. So you'll hear their take pre-pitch tomorrow. That is going to be great. That comes out really soon. We also have talked to a number of amazing folks. So we also talked to John Edelson, who's in the midst of stepping down from time for learning and handing over the reins after many years of accelerating the homeschooling market. So really, really interesting stuff happening there as well. And then on the events calendar, we've got a happy hour at South by Southwest. Over 200 folks have RSVP'd. It promises to be a gathering of 200 of our most favorite people. And then we have on the 13th, we have a happy hour in Los Angeles. On March 30th, we have a happy hour in San Francisco at Driftwood Pub. And on April 17th at ASUGSV, we're going to be doing a roundtable near the convention center. That's on that, that Monday, April 17th. Stay tuned. Obviously, if you have events going on in your neck of the woods, let us know. We'd love to cross-promote and just keep our community connected. With that said, let's jump into the news. What's our first headline, Alex? So the first headline is something that we've been talking about for a while, but this week it really crossed the Rubicon. I, I think this may be a week in EdTech that we look back on in a year, two years and say, okay, that's when things really started to change. So the topic, of course, is ChatGPT. But what happened this week is that ChatGPT launched an API for businesses, which basically allows businesses to install and use ChatGPT inside their dedicated services. And they did it with a few companies to start sort of as a kickoff event, one of which was Snapchat, kind of interesting, but which is Quizlet. And anybody who knows Quizlet, it's one of the most popular websites actually in the world of any time, but it's also a mega edtech company with a humongous amount of data built in both about learners and about actual content. And they are building, they've just launched a, what they're calling QChat. It's an AI tutor built with the open AI APIs. And I think this is a moment where we are, I mean, we're just going to look back and say, yeah, that was the first shot across the bow. And now floodgates are open. What, what do you think of the Quizlet move, Ben? Well, in general, I don't think we can underscore how big of a deal it is to have this API. And I liken this to electricity. It is something that is now going to be available to basically everyone. It's a utility and it's something that will be ubiquitous. And so coming back to like, what does this mean for the ed tech space? It will be hard for people to differentiate themselves based on having electricity because everyone will have electricity. 
And let's remember when electricity was invented, you know, there was the hyper investments in the electric companies, but there were also a, a whole ecosystem of new innovations that required the electricity. And so then came the light bulb, but also came refrigeration. And then everybody invested in refrigerator companies, which turned out to be like heavy duty manufacturing, relatively low margin, high competition. So who won at the end of the day because of electricity? Well, it turns out it was Coca-Cola because a bottle of water with sugar that's warm is worth zero. And a bottle of water with sugar in it that is cold and refreshing is worth billions and billions of dollars. In fact, the most valuable company in the history of the world up until that point. And so the question for Quizlet and for all of these others is now that you're electrified, what's the Coke? And I think there's a way in which there's this battle to be first mover with the chat GPT enabled features. But what really is going to have the staying power is the unique use case where the kind of old way of doing it was just moderately good. But the new way of doing it with chat GPT is like an ice cold Coke versus a warm Coke. And so, you know, the API means that's going to be available. It also means chat GPT and open AI are in the lead compared to Google and some of the other large language models. I expect this to be a really interesting race and I expect it to be really fast. So very rare in education that we have something that launched in November and here we are in March and it's already changing the game. So this kind of speed and acceleration, I think will be one of the hardest things for the education systems to adapt to and navigate. What about you, Alex? What do you think is most exciting, but also you know, most worrisome as you see this playing out in our space? I think it's easy to talk about what's exciting about it because I love that metaphor of the electricity. It's going to create just layers and layers of different kinds of uses, some on top of the other. It's just crazy. And, and you know, Quizlet's use case makes a lot of sense because it's a place that has an enormous amount of its own data to pull from, as well as the data that's trained the original, you know, open AI APIs. They have proprietary data inside their millions of flashcards. So that makes a lot of sense. So Alex, can you explain to our listeners why that's important? Because I, I'm not sure that everyone understands how important it is to have your own data as well. Open AI's ChatGPT is trained basically on things that are on the internet and open on the web. That is a huge amount of information. And that's what makes it so good at doing that predictive language. It's called a large language model, predictive language matching. You can ask it virtually anything. And because it's been trained on the internet, basically, it can put sentences together, put paragraphs together, put information together in a way that, for the most part, will make a lot of sense and be very coherent. That said, that's only the public information in the internet. So if you're a company like Quizlet or Snapchat, for that matter, and you have a lot of data inside your own servers from millions of users, and in Quizlet's case, a huge amount of actual content, people have uploaded, you know, anatomy, you know, 500 anatomy textbooks worth of uh, vocabulary about anatomy, huge amounts of information there then you have additional information that you can feed into these APIs, both from the content side and from the user side to be able to actually begin to personalize the experience. So QChat is, you know, they call it an adaptive 
tutor because it can actually change the way it tutors based on the user's information, but also it's trained on Quizlet's proprietary educational content library, which includes both questions and answers, which is also a really interesting aspect of their particular data set. So it's a lot. Now, to be clear, if a company like a Pearson came in, they also have a massive educational content library. It's not unique to Quizlet, but it does matter because you can then combine the APIs that OpenAI uses. You can combine data sets. You can combine the open data set that ChatGPT already uses and an internal private one. And that's a big deal. And that's also part of why this is a big deal for having the APIs at all is a big deal because now every business that has its own data inside it, which is many, many businesses, all sorts of different kinds of data can start using it and combining it in that way as well. Right. And so this is really the the big, big question too, because if you've got chat GPT's data set, you can tune it on your own data set And this is where, you know, in normal internet use, you get the hallucinations, but just a little bit of tuning of your own data gets the accuracy up to like 99.7, 99.8. You start getting questions with actual factual answers like Quizlet would have the, you know, the question and the answer. The question is how much data do you need? And I was, you know, I mentioned this on a podcast before at Duolingo, they were saying you really only need like, 20 people answering a question to get statistical validity on that question. So the real, you know, the mathematical question here is what is a sufficient data set size? At Quizlet, they had a big enough data set that they were already using AI. What about the smaller, you know, entrants? Could they get a hyper-focused set of data that's way, way smaller, maybe only thousands of users or 100,000 users can they then create the 99.7 or 8.8.9% accuracy that's really needed for the learning space? So it's going, basically this summer, everyone's got to figure it out and they've got to have it by fall launch or they're toast. And that is, that's also insane amount of pressure on entrepreneurs to like win or die in like a six month window. Yes, Yes, I definitely agree. It's a really nutty moment because as you're saying, both sets of AI are accelerating at the same time, right? You know, AI that does require and then and can launch using humongous data sets is already quite sophisticated. But you're right, the type of AI that can you know, do really good predictive algorithms based on smaller and smaller data sets is also accelerating. So if you're a company that has a very particular niche in terms of either content or users, you can still use and, and as you say, tune the open AI APIs to what you're doing. And it, you don't, it's not just totally out there and not, not going to work because you don't have, you know, the 60 million students that Quizlet has. But that said, it's still an advantage to have 60 million students. You know, we talked to Kian, uh, Captain Farouche a few weeks ago on the podcast, and he, before these APIs came out, he gave a little sense. He's like, I think this is what's next for, for ChatGPT. They're going to put out these APIs. And his take was really interesting because he said the main thing that's going to allow is actually constraints. It's not just that it's about adding data. It's that you can tell the algorithm what it can't do. And I'm sure that's a big part of this as well. So if you're Quizlet and you have, you know, K-12 and college students and adult learners, you know, it's not going to answer, you know, risque questions. It's not going to give, you know, horrible political disinformation. It's not going to be racist. It's not going to do a lot of the things. So that you say. Regular so you open say. 
you know, of course, if you're a high school student, that's the first thing you're going to try to make it do. So I, I think it's going to definitely put some pressure. I do think there is this world of supervised AI where it's all about training the algorithm in a really specific way around really high quality data. And then there's generative AI, which is basically training the model on all the world's data and then setting up to learn and infer statistically. And there's a way in which these don't have to be totally separate. You could, on top of generative AI, have supervised AI that then is tuning the generative and you get the best of both worlds, which is just crazy volume of ambidexterity of the model. Like it can really do anything. And then you can narrow it through your supervised AI. And then on top of it all, I think we're also just seeing a lot of people recognizing the value of human in the loop. So if your stack is large language model plus specific data that you've got where you're training the model and then you have a human in the loop, you are basically superpowering your human in the loop to really meet the need of every learner. That's the promise. That's also probably the scariest thing too, because we really don't know how that's all going to play out. Before we move off of the chat GPT, by the way, it's probably worth noting a couple other highlights. We had an article from Sebastian Thrun and Sal Khan saying, that ChatGPT will fuel the future of higher education, meaning that higher ed will have to adapt because of how much ChatGPT is transforming the space. And also an article around ChatGPT and cheating. Is it going to be used for homework help or is it used for you know cheat sheets? Do you have any thoughts or takeaways from those articles, Alex? Yeah. So, ju- I mean, just really quickly on, on the homework side, the new take on the integrity question is an interesting nuanced one, which is, hey, there are a whole bunch of ed tech companies that business model are all about homework help. If ChatGPT creates a million AI tutors, do those threaten those services? What about what does it mean for Chegg's tutoring? What does it mean for a paper? What does it mean for all of these these types of services. And that's obviously very relevant to, to our listeners here. And I don't think anybody has an answer, but EdSearch has a really interesting article starting to predict, hey, what might happen if suddenly the special sauce of some of these companies gets just uh, becomes the electricity that powers everyone, as you say. And then on the, the Thrun and, and Khan interview, the thing that they had they both shared, and I think is really aligned with what we've been saying on this podcast, is that ChatGPT already has the power to basically do homework for any high school subject for any student at this point already. And, you know, that's a Thrun quote. And Khan is basically saying that old homework is getting dated extremely fast and students are going to have access to an AI tutor very soon. It's basically here, you know, yesterday. So it's really a forcing function. It's a moment where we have to rethink what assessment is. We can't just do the same thing we've always done because the tools are now unbelievably good on the learner side. So we have to get better on the educator side, really raising the bar. And I, you know, we've talked about that a lot, but it's really cool to hear it from two, you know, big ed tech luminaries like those. Well, it is a fascinating story. I have a hunch that the AI beat is going to show up again next week, but thanks for that around the world with ChatGPT. And for those of you users that are using the API, We'd love to hear how it's going. I was sitting down with Vlad Gudovich for lunch the other day, and he was like, the, the API for ChatGPT made his 
you know, he and a friend created an app that creates like worksheets and vocab lists and study guides for any book in the history of the world. And he's like, it's now like a hundred times faster because I have the API. It's just, it's mind blowing what people, what small teams of people can really do. We've talked a little bit about transformational change. Let's talk about someone putting the brakes on transformational change. The Department of Education reverse course and announced that they were delaying guidance on their TPS expansion. If you you were listening last episode, the Department of Education had announced that third-party providers for colleges and universities would be subject to the same oversight, regulatory requirements, et cetera, in order to receive federal funding. And one of the kickers of that was no foreign ownership. But Phil Hill had an incredible article that really breaks it down, the delay, and it gives hope for a lot of these third-party providers, not just to give their comments and input, but also to maybe avert the biggest potential downsides, which is a huge regulatory burden for anybody doing outsourced work for higher ed. Alex, this is your space. What do you think people are feeling now that they've seen this kind of pause? I would imagine that the higher ed community is still a little bit on tenterhooks trying to figure out where this is going to land. But the good news here is that the guidance that first came out came so suddenly and with a very, very small, almost non-existent window for sort of public commentary and discussion and and some of the processes that people sort of tended to expect, especially for a change that, that could have huge ramifications like this. So the update is basically, I think they've gotten an earful from many people in the ed tech community and many people in the higher ed community who are saying, we don't even know if we can sign contracts anymore. And I think they've said, okay, we're going to hold on this for a second, open it back up for more public discussion, try to understand, you know, everybody's concerns uh, before making a decision. So it's not that this is, you know, kill vetoed or something, but it is on delay because I think they were surprised at how enormous the backlash was to it throughout the whole industry. And I think that's a good thing. Government regulation is not necessarily bad, but something that comes down and, uh, and just throws a whole industry or more than one into confusion is usually not the best for, for anybody. So I'm glad it's being delayed, but you know, I don't think it's over. I don't think this story is over. I think it, we're going to see where it does end up landing. And, you know, Phil Hill had a great take. We mentioned this last week about how he felt that, you know, th- they were doing these sort of two policies at the same time. One was about OPMs directly, and one is sort of about all third-party servicers. And his take was, hey, maybe they're playing politics here, and they, they're putting two things out, expecting that at least that one will get knocked down, and then they can still use the other one. And I thought that was an interesting sort of inside take on it. We'll see if that's the result of this. It could be that they come back and say, you know what, let's not worry about the third party stuff so much, but we do care about OPMs and we are still going to regulate them in a totally different way. And that would not be a super surprising outcome uh, for me. What do you think, Ben? You've been talking to people about this for, for since it first dropped. I think the overall you know, concern in the industry is shared universally. But the question that a lot of people have been asking is, who stands to gain out of all of this? And it's basically the large universities like Arizona State University, Western Governors, the folks that have been really innovative, but who also have borne all of the regulatory headache. And you have to wonder, are some of those schools behind this, where they're essentially eliminating OPM competition because they are directly competing with the OPMs? If you look at ASU's deal with YouTube and you look at a lot of the ways in which 
through you know operating partnerships, these large now non-geographic universities have have moved. You can see that this might be the kind of saving grace for large universities if they can you know claim that territory. I believe it was University of was it Arkansas or Alabama that was buying the University of Phoenix. Arkansas. Yeah, University of Arkansas. So there is this world where I think we all have been talking about or expecting the demise of the four-year university, partly because of modularization, partly because the ROI is not there, partly because their cost structures are upside down. Is this actually a protection move from the universities trying to protect their space from being eaten, eaten up by OPMs and now that they've demonstrated that a few of them can actually compete head to head in that space. So you have to wonder, you know, Department of Ed doesn't put out something as aggressive as this without having some allies in a corner saying, this is great policy. You got to wonder who are those people? And it's probably like anti-privatization people. Maybe it could be labor, but also you have to think the universities for the most part are on the side of the Biden administration. Interesting take. I love that analysis. It's really, I have no idea what sort of coalition might be behind something like this. I, I tend to assume it's incompetence rather than malice and that it's it's really, you know, the apotheosis of all of these senators and all of this, basically the federal government saying, we've, we've spent so much money on higher ed and it's getting sort of yep. siphoned off into, into for profits. We got to do something. And then they do something and realize that the something they did is like throwing, a, you know, glue into the gears. More than Maybe a combination thereof, and I have no insider info here, but tell me if this goes through and all OPMs are subject to the same regulatory hurdles as a university, who wins? It's the universities sure. that have figured out how to compete the OPMs despite those regulations. So it will be interesting to see what sticks. All right. Well, we're on to topic three you know, as predicted at the beginning, actually in our predictions episode, we talked about more M&A, you know, EdTech winter creating some interesting bedfellows. And there's ones that would be defensive where it's, you know, somebody who's running out of cash and, you know, there's the opportunistic acquirer coming in and then some that are more on offense, like, okay, now's our moment to drive our share while others are weak. So we've got two, I'm curious, do you think these were aggressive on the offense moves or are these the case of one company failing and the other company taking advantage? The first one is IXL Learning, acquiring Teachers Pay Teachers. TPT is the world's largest platform for educator-created content, huge database. IXL has a number of properties, including a bunch of math programs. And then Paper acquires major clarity to create a comprehensive career and college readiness platform. So this is basically combining papers, tutoring service with career and college guidance support. Break it down for me. What do you think about these two? Great question. I would say that the paper one, I think, is a offensive move, but also one that, you know, paper is very aware that there's been a little bit of a backlash against you know, some of these enormous tutoring contracts, and they're saying, well, we need to expand what we're doing. And we need to expand it in a direction that people really, really want to be be in. 
So we're going to expand into college and career readiness because that's an area that we can offer for students that is beyond tutoring and something that sort of maybe is a buffer against, you know, not enough usage. So I think the the paper move is sort of offensive to expand their market, expand sort of what they do, expand their offerings, but also in the face of let's make sure that we're safe against some negative press. The other one, it's hard to know. I don't know much about what's going on inside Teachers Pay Teachers. I don't know. What do you think? I was pretty surprised to see this IXL Teachers Pay Teachers. They seem like wildly different types of companies to me, but I'm probably missing something big there. Well, you know, it's hard to know. And aside from the press release, there's not a lot out there to tell us why this happened. But with the advent of... AI-generated content, you have to wonder what Teachers Pay Teachers was thinking about all this. Number one, they might be thinking, well, we are the largest platform for teacher-created content. That data could be incredibly valuable to someone who's trying to create generative content. But they could also feel like, Mm. holy crap, that's our entire business. And now AI can create things with similar quality to anything that we have. And the truth is, you know, the reputation of Teachers Pay Teachers has been quantity, not quality. It really has this incredible database and kudos to them for figuring out the double-sided marketplace of this. But it's mostly like worksheets on, you know, what to do for St. Patrick's Day for fourth graders. Like it's not mind-changing deep lessons. Now, I will confess during COVID in my pod, We got a couple of units on explorers and presence of the U.S., you know, American Revolution from Teachers Pay Teachers, and you can find good stuff there. So I guess the question is for IXL, which when you boil it down, it's a content company that has academic content. They have now this ability to take all of this data, take all of that teacher community and power everything that they've got. And so there is a way in which... You could imagine a generative AI layer, a teacher curated or created layer, and then the kind of top-down created, like core constructed. And, you know, I also know that Teachers Pay Teachers was looking at going into video and short-form video as another mode of learning. And that might also be an IXL strategy because many of IXL's products do short little video clips on a math concept, for example. So I think there's a degree to which both of these companies had kind of flattened out their potential. The combination, you know, something like half of all M&A does not work out to be successful. I think this is a roll of the dice and it could have huge upside if they figure out the right way to layer the cake, but it could also be like a break even, a moot point or a downside. Also in the agreement, there was no clarity on what the purchase price was for. The paper one is interesting because it does feel like paper is trying to diversify. And maybe the one asset that paper has is a lot of cash on the balance sheet. And, you know, if I were in paper shoes, I'd be diversifying really quick, especially given that the kind of expiration date on ESSER means that even if they were doing, you know, great job on the tutoring front, they were looking at a haircut. So I think this is probably the first of many moves you're going to see from paper. Their CEO was on our show and he's really sharp and he understands all the different needs of learners. 
And you could see them actually playing more like a private equity roll-up role in the space, given that they already have contracts with something like 100 of the top 150 districts in the country. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The other thing they have is incredible relationships. They're already, you know, embedded in so many districts that if they have something new and really relevant to offer these districts, it's a very clear, you know, renewal upsell opportunity there for sure. And, you know, it's, it's interesting with the IXL, they, you're right, they're a content company. They're also very much of a language company. If you look at, you know, they have Immersion, which is an AI language app. They have uh, SpanishDictionary.com, English.com, Rosetta Stone is owned by IXL. So I think your analysis makes a lot of sense. I think they're trying to think about, okay, we have all of this different types of content. We're trying to put it together and sell it through our different channels. Teachers Pay Teachers has, you know, more than 7 million resources, all from teachers and these amazing relationships. And IXL's in, you know, 85% of schools. So both of these companies are sort of universally known in K-12 schools. So I guess I sort of see it. It still doesn't totally add up to me, but, you know, we'll see what happens. Great. Well, we will be following up with this, and this is certainly not the last M&A to shake things up. We go from ed tech big players to big tech big players with TikTok. TikTok has long courted the ed tech market. In fact, I believe it was 2019 or 2020, they launched an ed tech division, I think called Dali in China, but pulled back when the government regulations cracked down on private providers. Tell us a little bit about their new foray. Yeah, interesting moment. So the fact that TikTok launching an ed tech platform, the dedicated ed tech platform is like our fourth headline today, maybe gives you a little bit of a sense of how crazy this world is. That would be a number one in many weeks. But TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is launching a new ed tech platform called Genius Joy. It is AI-based. We know that ByteDance is a you know Chinese company. We also know that TikTok is in the midst of being banned in many different countries right now. There's a lot of backlash against standard TikTok. That said, ByteDance has played with EdTech for a while because there's a huge ecosystem of educational content on TikTok. TikTok education is enormous. And so ByteDance is now hiring in both Singapore and LA for this Genius Joy program. And it's about, you know, global primary school students. They said they're going to focus on 10 to 12, build math and STEM skills and using the Singapore math pedagogy, which is very famous, well-known math curriculum. So it's a very specific move, but I think, you know, anything, a company of that size, and that is so ubiquitous in, in kids' lives starts to make moves directly into ed tech. We've all got to take notice of that. And I'm surprised a little bit to, to see that this is like about STEM with a very specific age and it's AI based makes sense, but I would think that they would be using the AI similarly to the way Quizlet does to take the infinite number of TikTok videos and start to, you know, curate or think about them for education. Maybe that's something down the road, but the fact that they're coming back into ed tech and to math is definitely newsworthy. What do you think about this TikTok move, Ben? Do you think it's just a little spark in the pan, flash in the pan, or or is this like we're going to look back at a year and say, oh, yeah, TikTok's the biggest education company in the world now? Well, if we look from the education sector perspective, anytime one of the big tech players gets involved, it creates market distortions that are hard to predict and can be really, really challenging. But I, too, am really shocked at how small the ambition is of this stated you know, company. 
And so it makes me go back to the larger story around TikTok, which is it's under fire from the U.S. government because of its ownership by a Chinese parent company, ByteDance, and all of the kind of connections to the Chinese government. And, you know, this week they also announced that kids under 18 would get a notification when they hit one hour of scrolling on TikTok. There was also another story that showed that actually half of college students get homework help on TikTok already. So there's a way in which this could also be a PR, like, good for America thing where launching a, like, a tutoring or math service that is valuable to students, leverages TikTok data that could become, you know, effective and beloved could be part of their broader social impact CSR investment portfolio to try to avoid you know, regulation or banning from the U.S. I don't see that being effective. It could also be that they just recognize that math tutoring is such a huge marketplace worldwide. And if you look at that age group and the ability and willingness to pay of families outside of the U.S. across the world, it's ginormous. And so maybe they're just saying, we're already seeing these kids' profiles using it, maybe even at a a later age, why not let's codify it? And maybe they can make it a little bit safer for kids than just being on open TikTok. It is telling that it's the number four topic. And, you know, if this starts becoming a bigger deal, we're going to move it up the list. But I think for now, it's a slow simmer (laughs) and we keep our eyes open. So just one more tiny point about that. You mentioned in passing that our article about people using TikTok, more than half of college students. So this is an intelligent.com survey. They surveyed a thousand college students. Not only do they say they use it for homework, but more than half of them say they learn more on TikTok than in their classes. And the top subject for that is math. So maybe there is something inside the data of TikTok that we are not seeing where people are using it for unbelievable amounts of math help and homework help and tutoring, and they're just going where the the interest is. But I mean, the fact that more than half of the college students surveyed said they learn more on TikTok than in their classes should be a little bit of a headline in all of our heads as as educators. This is where we've gotten to in higher ed. The vast majority of students do not feel like they're learning very much in their college courses. This is a crisis. And the fact that a company as big as TikTok continues to see this as a place to play in suggests that it's a gigantic market. All right, from the gigantic to the local, South by Southwest in Austin coming up this next week, we have an EdTech Insiders happy hour at 5 p.m. I'm not sure that we're gonna get this one out by that publishing date, but as I mentioned in the top, we have 250 of our best friends coming. And there's a number of great panels. There's a number of great topics. Any insights that you have, Alex, to share with our listeners? Yeah. We, so Greg Tapo, a very long-term education journalist who has been on the pod for his books, wrote a really interesting rundown of some of the panels that are going to be on there. Some things that really jump out one one panel jumped out to me a lot. Developing and assessing creative skills with AI, featuring Lego, Brain Pop, and the Gates Foundation. That feels like something to keep an eye on. As you all know, Lego's parent company bought Brain Pop earlier this year. So Lego and Brain Pop are now under the same umbrella. 
they are clearly thinking about creativity and AI in some really interesting ways. We're also seeing panels about, you know, what does Gen Z really want? Speaking of TikTok, smartphone addiction, social media issues, mental health, teacher shortages, recruiting teachers of color. And one article that stood out to us as well from Ed Week is that the science of reading is, you know, a really hot topic this year because 18 states have passed science of reading laws, basically focusing on evidence-based reading teaching instead of, you know, whole language and balanced literacy approaches, which have sort of dominated for a long time. 18 states have passed it since 2021. Nine states have legislation right now. And, you know, more than half of the states in, in the U.S. are now truly moving towards this, hey, we've got to get phonics right. And so a lot of ed tech is thinking about that. And you're going to see a lot of panels and interesting talks about science of reading. We also see Frank Gehry there, which is always a fun site. But it sounds like it's going to be an amazing conference. I'm not going to be there myself. This is one of the first South by Southwest I've missed. And I'm so sad because it sounds like there's like such incredible things happening everywhere, including this happy hour that I'm going to miss our 200 best friends. Ben, what are you looking forward to? You're going to be in the weeds. I mean, you're going to be deep in it up to your neck in South by Southwest this week. What are you looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, you know, most of the conferences for me, it's about the people and the connections and really catching up on what's really happening in the space. One thing that I'll note is that it seems like fewer district leaders are coming to South by Southwest this time. And so that's really changed some of the dynamic. Those who often went to the event to meet and potentially pitch, district leaders are not coming. And so it feels a little bit more like a similar type of feel to ASU GSV, a little bit less investor heavy, a little bit less techie, a little bit more programmy, but not as much of a presence of practitioners and administrators and leaders. And I think that is a potential loss for the conference and for the space. But Lots of new companies kind of emerging, lots of new players. And let's remember that last year was the first time since the pandemic that it happened. So I think there's, you know, this will be the first time that it will be fully back. If you happen to be at South by, if you happen to be at ASU GSV, please drop us a line, say hello at ASU GSV. We're hoping to have a booth there just to do postcards from ASU GSV. So we'd love to hear from you. All right. As we wrap it up, Alex, any funding M&A that we should talk about? Yeah. I mean, we saw New Markets Venture Partners get $160 million fund to spend on ed tech and workforce companies. That is a pretty serious fund. We're actually talking to one of the partners at New Markets shortly on the podcast. Look forward to that soon. We also saw $50 million for a Chinese campus recruitment platform called NowCoder, $41 million for a student finance platform that's really focuses on ISAs, income share agreements in Europe. Some really interesting, kind of wacky funding rounds this week. And then, of course, those amazing mergers we already talked about, as well as one where Perdocio, which is a big education services company that runs a lot of big colleges, acquired the coding bootcamp Coding Dojo, which is a, one of the a really old school and really, really effective coding boot camps. So that's another one of these roll ups from coding boot camps into the higher ed environment. We saw Physics Walla and Utkarsh combine, it's called Utkarsh classes, combine to do some new test prep. That, those are two big Indian test prep companies that work in science and other topics. So when we saw Morocco on the map, so, you know, we saw some interesting movement last 
last week with the EdTech Accelerator in Africa. And now we see Morocco-based EdTech Cool Schools get about a million-dollar investment to solve educational problems with interactive courses, exercises, management of school life, live courses, is sort of all-in-one EdTech platform for schools. That's not as organized as we usually say, but some pretty interesting stuff happening. Yeah, you know, and I'd say a lot still going on in workforce, higher ed, and upskilling, and, you know, continue to see trends in K-12 where it's really around testing and assessment. And I think it's really exciting to see some of the new entrants in EdTech in Africa. What we know is it's just there's a number of very large markets in sub-Saharan Africa, in Northern Africa, quite a, a lot of government investment that has gone into EdTech just to create the infrastructure. So an area we'll continue to watch. And just on a last note, you know, Fast Company put out their 10 most innovative companies in education this year. It's always an interesting list to look at. And it was a kind of surprising list this year. We don't have to go into great detail, but, you know, you had companies like Learn Platform, which we know just acquired by Instructure. You had companies like Teachers Pay Teachers, as we know, just acquired by IXL. Multiverse was on there, which is amazing, you know, apprenticeship company out of Europe, which makes sense. Disco was on there. That's a Canadian CBC platform. One League, which is basically a platform that does digital MBAs. One thing that really edX is on there. One of the things that really struck me is how few of these are K-12. I don't know if any of them are K-12 specific, maybe teachers. And how many of them are really about that bridge between university and work? There's a lot of these are really about career readiness. I don't think this has been true in other years. I mean, you see Babel on there for language learning, but it's an interesting list. And, you know, not quite as, I don't know, strange. It's, they have school links on there. It's a it's sort of competitor Naviance. It's all about counseling. It's worth looking at just to sort of get a, a little bit of a pulse of where the ed tech, you know, spotlight is going these days, because it feels pretty different than previous years. Did anything on this list sort of stand out to you, Ben, just as a closing, <laughs> closing yeah, topic? Well, one, you were on the list of 100 most influential ed tech people. Yeah, yeah. So congratulations, Alex. Bravo. Thank you. And, <laughs> no, all of these lists just tell us that we are in an era of increasing not just innovation, but acceleration. And so it's just the speed at which things are changing is mind-boggling. So that's part of why we do the Week in EdTech, is just so you and I can keep tabs on what's going on, and hopefully it helps you, the listener, as well. Well, thank you all for joining so much, uh, because if it happens in EdTech, you'll hear it here on the Week in EdTech. Take care and see you all out at the conferences. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insiders newsletter on Substack. Substack.